Worth Repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation, the City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, Do210.com, Real Ale Brewing Company, and Texas A&M University in San Antonio. Welcome to the Worth Repeating Podcast. The stories in this episode recorded live at Texas Public Radio headquarters in the Malou and Carlos Alvarez Theater and Studio. In this episode, we bring you stories about confusing moments, language barriers, and things that get lost in translation. Our first storyteller is Dr. Abigail Hasbury. Abby shares a story about a couple of confusing moments and how they stemmed from the best intentions. Hello. <laughs> so I'm Abby Hasbury. I'm a transracial adoptee. You may say, what is a transracial adoptee? So a transracial adoptee is someone who is adopted by a family of a different race or ethnicity. So clearly I'm black. My family is white. Um, my parents um, had three biological children and found out that they couldn't have any more kids. And so they decided we need to have a bigger family. We're Roman Catholic. It's just a thing that needs to happen. And so they decided that they wanted to adopt a child. So it was the 70s. My parents were pretty cool, hip kind of people, um, decided they wanted to integrate their family and just kind of be these people who are integrating and just thinking about the world in a different way. So they had lots of friends that they worked with who had adopted kids who had been orphaned in Vietnam. And so my parents were like, yeah, we're gonna do that. We're gonna adopt a kid from Vietnam. My parents probably didn't have enough money to take the whole family to a Vietnamese restaurant. So thinking that they were gonna adopt a kid <laughs> from Vietnam was the thing that wasn't gonna happen. So instead, they decided to adopt me, a black kid from Baltimore City. So they got a discount, but it's whatever. <laughs> so I wanted to think about this. I wasn't their first choice. Their first choice was a biological kid. I wasn't their second choice. Their second choice was this Vietnamese kid. So I was their third choice. Kind of sucks. It's OK. I'm in therapy. I'm getting over it, but it's, it's fine. Being a transracial adoptee, being a black kid, raised in a white family, in a white neighborhood, going to very white schools. My parents were both educators. My mom a private school English teacher. So I went to the schools where she taught. It was very confusing for me. I didn't know who I was, who I was supposed to be, had no racial mirrors. I remember one of the things my mom used to tell so proudly when I was about five or six years old, she found me in my bathroom with a yellow towel affixed to my head with a beautiful little headband and singing ABBA into my hairbrush. <laughs> I was very confused. <laughs> I said my parents were educators. My father was a professor who wanted to teach, but not do any research. So every three to five years, publisher parish, we would move. Um, when I was in first grade, we moved to Egypt. So we lived in Egypt from, 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 for three years. My dad taught at the American University in Cairo. And we did all those things that you do, touristy things. Our first trip to the pyramids, we got on a bus, us and a, a bunch of other expats all on a bus, we get off the bus. I'm the youngest, so I have family in front of me, family behind me, we're shuffling off the bus to make sure that the little one doesn't get lost. I step off the bus, and the first thing that happens is I get grabbed 
off the bus and pulled away from my family. I'm in, I'm in horror, like I'm horrified and terrified. My parents don't know what to do, so they're not reacting. The tour bus guy grabs me back from this man and yells something in Arabic. They're yelling back and forth. And I find out that what happened was that these Egyptians didn't understand our family and they thought that I was a Nubian stowaway who was begging and trying to beg with the, what the white families on the bus. Very confusing. Again, I'm in therapy, it's okay. I'm actually a therapist, so it's really okay. <laughs> it was tough, there were really tough moments. Um, in middle school, we moved to Miami, and I went to a very affluent private school, very prestigious school, great education, but I was again very confused. The only black kid in my grade, no black kids in my family, none in my community, in my neighborhood. I was invited to go swimming by one of my friends and was so excited to go do this. The night before, I was supposed to go and have this amazing swim party at a country club. My mom gets a call and I can see her face kind of almost melt as she's talking on the phone and she hangs up the phone and she comes and she sits me down and she says, the play date has been canceled, you're not gonna be swimming with your friends and I'm sorry to tell you this. My mom did a lot of things wrong, but in this moment she did everything right. She died about two months ago, so excuse me if I get a little choked up. She said, your friend's mom called and they've uninvited you to the country club because they belong to a country club that doesn't allow black kids to swim there. She said to me the next thing that really kind of changed who I am as a person and made me understand life and people in a different way, she said to me, your friend can come over and play at our house whenever she wants to because this is her family's choice and not hers but you will never be allowed to go over to their house and play again, as long as they continue to be part of a country club that will exclude black people. <laughs> yeah, give it up to my mom. Thank you. She also would get so angry when things happen, when injustices happen to me. In high school, I was driving home from, a, from the movies about midnight, me and a friend in my car just driving home, and I noticed lights behind me, just kind of following us for about a mile. Then we get pulled over. The policeman comes over. He tells us to wait in the car. He gets back up. I'm like literally 17 years old, I think, and weighed about 110 pounds. He got back up. The other policeman came. He pulled us out. They asked us to come out of the car. My friend went to the front of the car. I was in the back of the car. It's behind the car, the um, trunk of the car. And they were asking questions. Where are you going? You know, what are your names? Where did you get this car? Where are you going? What is your name? Where did you get this car? Over and over and over again. But it seemed like forever, probably was closer to five, 10 minutes, but it seemed like forever. At some point it clicked in my head. He had been following me for a while. He kept asking me where I was going, what my name was and where did I get the car? And I said to him, oh, I'm adopted. My parents are white. I'm sure the car is registered to my dad, who is an older white male but I'm adopted. And so then he said, oh, okay, and he let us go. I went home, told my mom, shaky, crying, and my mother just lost it. Wanted, wanted his badge number, was just so angry. And again, she did everything right in that moment where she told me that this is basically my first experience of driving while black and this is gonna happen and told me what to do for the next time. So there were a lot of really hard moments, but there are also some really funny moments. My favorite moment, is the moment I realized I was going to marry my husband and spend the rest of my life with him. So 
in dating as a transracial adoptee, I only dated black men. And I never told them that I was adopted. I like to see their reaction when they first came to meet my family. <laughs> and I got everything from someone coming in, seeing my parents and totally code switching and putting on their telephone voice and talking to my parents in that way, to someone coming in and just completely talking to my dad like he was like the coolest hood guy on the street and you know, any, any, any kind of reaction. But with my husband, we had been dating for about three months. I was a single parent at that point, had been divorced. He had met my son, but not my family. And I said, okay, it's probably time. So I decided to have him come meet my family. We pull up to my parents' condo and my son is riding his bike outside and my dad is with him. My husband's boyfriend at the time looks over and he's just kind of taking it all in. I say, oh, there they are. And he's like, kind of just still taking it in. He's sitting there for a while and I guess he just kind of got it. I look over at him and it's as if in his mind he was saying to himself, no wonder she's never fried chicken. No wonder she knows all the words to all the Beatles songs. No wonder she was singing ABBA in her hairbrush last week. And he just got out of the car and accepted it and that's the moment I knew I love this man. Transracial adoption is the gift that keeps on giving. My kids are now 27, 21, and 16. And they also have experienced this. Last summer we were in London and my daughter was ordering fries at Camden Market and a guy, a Moroccan guy was just talking to her and hitting on her and asking her about America and what we were doing here and who she was with. We were there with my daughter, my, young, my two daughters, my husband and my niece, Sophie. Sophie has beautiful blonde hair, blue eyes, my brother's child. She says, oh yeah, that's my mom, that's my sister, that's my dad and that's my cousin and he says, your cousin? She said, yeah, that's my cousin Sophie. She, her dad is my mom's brother. And he looks, he kind of just shrugs his shoulder and he says, only in America. <laughs> Thank you. Our next storyteller is Dr. Leona Schwenninger. Leona shares a story about how all adults should assume that every child has a mischievous streak. So, um, everyone in here, anyone in here have children? Yeah? They're quite entertaining, aren't they? Even when they're not entertaining, I try to laugh because, you know, it's better than crying. So I have three sons. Um, one of them is especially the one that I usually get the calls from school. And so he's the one who I usually tell stories about because I, I think he does these things on purpose just so that I'll go ahead and tell stories about him. But, you know, he started this at birth. So... I was um, pregnant, and I was teaching in Corpus Christi, and, and uh, I was teaching ninth graders at the time. And you know what ninth graders are like. So I don't really have to say a whole lot about ninth graders. But this particular class, I was standing in front, and the kids were coming in, and the bell rang, and I went into labor. And so I'm just like, 
and you know doing my lamas um all what i've been taught for the breathing and the kids are all like oh my god she's gonna have her baby right now and and i'm just putting my finger up because i can't do anything but breathe and i finally get through it and i looked at one of my students and said would you go to the office please and tell him i'm in labor and so he did, he left, and I told a little girl, Melissa, come here, and I write down the phone number, and I said, go into this workroom behind me, please, and call my husband and tell him that I'm in labor. And she says, okay, okay, this is what I want the rest of you guys to do. You have a free day. I said, but I need some students to actually look at the time and tell me how long each of these contractions are lasting. <laughs> And, you know, they were a very, very, they listened the entire class period. I don't know what they were listening to, but they were listening to me breathe and they were watching me like they thought I was going to drop that baby out any time. <laughs> but I get to the hospital and um, my son is wrapped up in the birth canal and so he can't come out. And they, it was a 42-hour delivery. It was absolutely crazy. And I couldn't have any medication because my back was um, too curvy. <laughs> He's like, straight your back out. And my husband's all like, she can't. That's, that's what she looks like. So <laughs> they couldn't give me any medicine. So I gave this child a natural delivery. And um, it, it was tough. It was really tough. He was born um, meconium. And I don't know if any of you guys know what that is, but they have a bowel movement before they're born. And so he had a bowel movement. I know it's kind of funny. Um, my husband said he was like Josie Wells, and he was born with shit in one eye and, and blood in the other. <laughs> I was just like, you know, this is crazy. But, you know, the doctors apgard him at first at a four, so they didn't think he was going to make it. But they handed him off like a football. They handed him off, you know, the obstetrician to the pediatrician, and the pediatrician had him within 10 minutes back to an APGAR score of a 10. So, you know, 10 out of 10, he's doing really well. We're going to fast forward a little bit in time. So my son is now six years old. And the day before, his brother, um, his youngest brother, had had an accident at his nursery school. So he didn't have any clothes in the cubby. So you know what kind of accident he had. And, and so they called my parents and, you know, had, well, they called me first and I called my parents so my parents came and picked him up. And my parents, they um, lived in Europe during World War II. They were the Germans that were in the East that they kicked out. And then from Germany, because they're not really German. They're German, but they're not. So they came to America, right? And I'm talking separately, because they met here in America. So my parents are, are one of those, we got to have fun all the time kind of people. Let's go have some fun. So my six-year-old at the time, that's the same one. Oh, by the way, his name is Reese. And if you don't know, that means the wildly energetic one. <laughs> Aptly named. So he goes and, um, to his class, and they tell me, the diagnostician, we have some bad news for you. He is um, intellectually disabled. He, he's a neurodivergent. He probably has an IQ of about maybe 68. They were wrong. But, you know, at the time, I didn't know any better, so I'm thinking, okay. But I don't understand, because he's pretty manipulative and he's pretty smart. So, so, you know, I'm like, I don't know about this, but whatever. So I leave that day. He goes to his class. There's two kids in the class. That's it. And a substitute teacher. 
And the substitute is, oh, watching these two kids, they're supposed to be watching movies all day. Right, and my son's ADHD. So I'm thinking, yeah, that's not gonna work, but let's see what they do with him today. He gets bored, of course he does. And he asks if he could go use the restroom. So she lets him go for 30 minutes. He's six. He stops in the teacher's lounge. No one sees him. He gets brown construction paper and tears it in little tiny pieces. Goes to the boys' bathroom and gets them wet. And then he puts them in his pockets. And he goes back to the, oh wait, he goes outside. And it's been raining out there. So he finds some mud and puts a little, he puts a little on his hands and he puts a little on his, his legs and just a little bit on his face. And then he goes back to the classroom and he tells his teacher he had an accident. Oh, you poor thing, why don't you come on over here? I'll help you clean up. And he, deep, he goes into his pockets, the principal's now walking by, and he goes into his pockets and takes his paper out and throws them and says, cockaballs. So they call me down to the office. You know, they call me at my work down to the office. So we have to suspend him. I go, you're going to suspend him? And she said, yes, this is no laughing matter. I'm like, really? Because I think it's hilarious. And so I explained to her through my point of view what I have understood and then said, you know, anything could happen to him. He was gone for 30 minutes. He could have walked home because we were close to our home. You just don't know what, he could have been kidnapped. Anything could have happened. And so they said, okay, you know what? Pretend I did not call today. I was like, all right, not a problem. I go to pick him up that afternoon. And as I'm picking him up, I said to him as he gets in the car, well, you had quite an adventure today, didn't you? And he said to me, yeah, he goes, I did. He goes, but mom, I don't understand. Why can't adults just let things go? And I said, well, you know, when you make a little shit. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Shaylin Washington. Shaylin shares a story about the importance of being on the same page when it comes to street names. Hey. <laughs> so remember when you were growing up and first learning how to read and you came across a word that you didn't recognize, but instead of sounding it out, you just guessed or made something up and that person was like Mr. Mr. F for the rest of the book? Well, I still do that. Currently, as an adult, and it's caused a lot of issues with communicating the street directions. So 10 years ago, I moved to Houston um, from Corpus Christi, Texas, and someone broke my car window. I didn't really know what to do, so I called my mom for help, and she was like, we'll just make a police report. Maybe the insurance will cover it. Now I know that the insurance does not cover broken windows. <laughs> my deductible's $500. 
And if any, if nothing's stolen out of the vehicle, there isn't really anything to report. But as it is, I was on the non-emergency line answering all these different questions. I'm on Southmore and Third Ward. No, not that apartment. I'm across the street. Not Nubia Square. It doesn't have a name. Can you give me a cross street? Okay, um, Tire Western? Where did you say you were? I'm on Southmore and Tire Western in Third Ward. Are you from here? <laughs> and so when I first moved to Houston, a lot of people were asking where I was from. Uh, a lot of people would guess, and they were like, are you from California or are you from Kansas? And I was like, no. <laughs> but then when I would tell them I was from Corpus Christi, then they wanted to run me through Selena trivia, which I also don't really know that well either. <laughs> so anyways, I was like, hey, I'm from Corpus Christi. And the guy goes, Corpus Christi? Isn't that kind of the country? And I was like, what? <laughs> we have the busiest Olive Garden in the region. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> And so anyways, the street is actually pronounced here Wester, not Western. And that isn't the last time that I had difficulty trying to tell the street, um, the street names to a police officer in Houston. And so um, there's a street that I've like always had difficulty with, and it's unanimous amongst Houstonians that I've been saying it wrong, and it's called Delano Street. I say Delano, they say Delano, tomato, tomato, like the street never really comes up. So I never put in effort into learning how to pronounce it properly. Um, but fast forward about seven years and I was trying to report another incident that was happening in third ward and that damn Delano came back to bite me in the ass. <laughs> So um, in 2020, I started working in an office that was actually off of Delano Street. And every Friday, me and my coworkers would go out for lunch. And so one Friday, we're heading down Delano to Alabama. And as my coworkers were watching the traffic to make the right-hand turn, I was like, do you guys see that man in the road? And everybody looks and they go, what man? And I was like, look, there's like an old Latin dude in the road, like, <laughs> and he's just laying there and cars are swerving past him. And I was like, oh, geez. And so, I mean, it sounds really fucked up, right? But I mean, we were in a pandemic, like the guy obviously didn't have a mask on. And even though Houston's very diverse, like in the neighborhoods, you kind of live by who you look like. And Third Ward's a historic black neighborhood. So I hadn't seen any older Latin people walking around, let alone lying in the street. And I wasn't getting out of the vehicle to help because I didn't want to get caught up in the mix. Best I could do is call the emergency services and ask for an ambulance. That's another word that I kind of have difficulty with. <laughs> so here I am calling, I'm calling 911. Hi, what's your emergency? Hey, I'm in Third Ward and there's this old man in the street. Um, I don't know if he's like been injured, but he hasn't moved and he looks like he might be distressed. I think he needs medical help. So could you please send an ambulance? <laughs> and so the lady is like, all right, 
what street are you on? I'm on Alabama in Third Ward. Is there a cross street? I'm on Delano. Could you repeat that? I'm on Delano Street in Alabama across from the park. Are you sure? Could you just check the signs again? I like I know you said Alabama, but what was it across street? At this point, um, a man had brought his car up and had his four ways on and was like waiting by the old man. But then I see this white pickup truck full of people uh, drive up really fast, stop by the man, and it's full of other Latin guys and they're all in white button down shirts, starch blue jeans. And so in Corpus Christi, whenever people were getting their life back on the right track, they would sell crosses and baked goods and it kind of looked like that kind of a situation. <laughs> and so as I'm still on the line trying to figure out how I'm gonna say Delano, is it Delano, Delano, Deano, I don't know. <laughs> so they like yank the old man up, toss him in the back. And I'm like, they took the old man. He, he, he's gone and they're going down Delano Street. So as I'm on the phone, I look around and I see a police cruiser coming up and I'm like, why did you send the police? I told you he needed medical assistance. And the lady goes, I haven't dispatched anyone. I didn't know where you were at. <laughs> and so um, she, you know, she started asking for my name and I was like, well, why do you need my name? Like, the man's gone, like there's not a crime happening anymore. Nothing, nothing's available. And so my, so I look at my coworkers and I was like, do you guys still want to go to lunch or do you want to go back to work? And I, I was like, I mean, they're tracking everything anyways. How did she not know where I was? I'm on the phone. Thank you. Our last storyteller is Julius Hunter. Julius shares a story about the importance of a clear message when teaching morals to a bunch of middle schoolers. All right, so I have a secret for you guys tonight. Uh, this is not a secret that I usually tell a whole lot of people, so you guys have to promise that this doesn't leave this room, okay? <laughs> so my favorite type of movie is a chick flick. I really love a good romantic comedy. Um, I love the magic about it. I love the love. I love those scenes where usually at the end of the movie, someone's running in the rain to get the person that's about to get away. I love that last kiss where someone they embrace and it's usually the girl, she's lifting up her, her leg to signal how much she really loves and enjoys that kiss. So about uh, 10, 15 years ago, uh, I was a youth pastor in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And one of the programs that we used to do is we would go to high schools and to junior highs, and we would uh, present 
Bible lessons and character lessons to them. And so uh, every week we'd have different high schools and junior highs we would go to. And so I remember uh, one particular week, it was a Thursday, and we were going to a middle school. And so uh, this middle school we had been going to for a couple of weeks uh, at that point. And that night I was going to talk about the Ten Commandments and I was going to do a lesson called Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Uh, and so that auditorium was very similar to this auditorium here, except it was probably created, built in the 60s and 70s, and so it had that good, friendly, cinder block feel to it, right? Uh, and so it was a junior high, and so of course, all of those musty smells lingered in the walls, and so when you went into that auditorium, you got that, that great, I guess, uh, flavor's not the right word, but that great aura. <laughs> right when you walked in. And so I uh, remember that night, and usually for these, these meetings, what we would do is we'd, we'd start off with uh, a band, and then we would have a little skit that would illustrate the message, and then I would come and give the message to the kids. And so uh, we had uh, con uh, concluded the whole uh, song time and the, the skit, and I was ready to give the message, and the, so the kids were eager, and they're like, let's go. And so I said, okay, kids, uh, tonight, the title of the message is Sex, Lies, and Videotape. And you know we're in the midst of this series about the Ten Commandments. And so tonight I really want to talk to you about how media sometimes can influence your emotions. It can influence your thinking. Uh, and so I want you guys to be excited for the message. Like, okay, let's do it. Let's go. And so I, said, so I started off the message and I said, okay, first of all, I want to tell you guys a secret tonight. The secret I don't tell many people. My secret is I really like chick flicks. And so right then when I said chick flicks, I saw there was like a vibe that moved amongst that middle school crowd. And some of the kids were putting their head down like this. Some of the kids were, you know, trying to look around, not capture my gaze. Some of them were shifting in their seats very uncomfortably. And so we had a couple of leaders there. And so I was looking over at the leaders, like, what's going on? You guys know what's happening here? And so they were shrugging their shoulders, like, we don't know what's going on either. And so I was like, well, whatever. I'm just going to move on with the message. So I get into the message about how media can influence you and how, you know, it can, it can stir up your emotions. And I remember it was like she was... She was positioned right at, just for a dramatic effect, right in the middle of the auditorium, right in the middle of where all the kids were seating, was this young uh, African-American girl, and she stood up, and you swear she was at a protest or something, and she stood up, bald fist, and she said, no, no, that's just nasty, nasty. And so I stopped. And so, of course, this all happened in a matter of seconds. I'm thinking in my head, like, what in the world? Why? You know, I'm going back into a message. All right, we had the song service. I mean, we had the regular pepperoni pizza, so that shouldn't be nasty. What? I don't understand. What did I say? I said, okay, I started off. I have a secret. I like chick flicks. Chick flicks. So I looked out at the kids and I said, hey, guys. What do you guys think about when I say the word chick flick? So again, they're shifting in the seats and 
they're getting a little bit uncomfortable and not looking directly at me. They're, they're deflecting the, their gaze. And I say, you know, like chick flicks, like romantic comedies, like, you know, like Princess Diaries. And they're like, oh, like how to, how to lose a guy in 10 days? I was like, yes, yes, yes. And so it was like they had all planned it, right? They're all sitting in front of me. It's like they planned it, but all of them collectively together went, oh. <laughs> of course, I put my hand on my head. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. I was like, okay, guys. All right, I want everybody to listen up. Do not go home <laughs> and tell your parents that your youth pastor is watching porn, okay? I don't want you to go home and tell them that. I don't want you to go home and tell them that I'm encouraging you to watch porn, okay? Are we all in agreement with that? Yes, sir, we all understand we're in agreement. And so, of course, we got a good laugh out of that, and then I went on with the rest of my message, uh, and then, of course, the leaders were all laughing too. And so, the moral of the story is, do not go home and tell people that Julius Hunter likes watching porn. Cause that's just nasty, <laughs> nasty. But you can go home and tell them that I like a good chick flick. Thank you. That's it for part one of the Worth Repeating podcast, Como. Tune in next week for part two. Worth Repeating returns in September with a whole new season. Want to be a part of the next season? Learn more about what it takes to volunteer with our Worth Repeating Storyboard by visiting tpr.org backslash WR and check out our storyboard application today. This season wouldn't have been possible without our current board. I remain endlessly thankful for their participation. Also this fall, Worth Repeating in print? That's right, worth repeating, San Antonio Stories, a book featuring a collection of 40 true tales, epic adventures, and intimate revelations. From last chances to first tries, all of these personal narratives were originally performed in front of a live audience at TPR's Worth Repeating Storyteller series. Be sure to follow TPR and Trinity University Press on social media to stay in the loop for all things Launch Party and more on where to find this San Antonio jewel. Worth Repeating is made possible by the 8020 Foundation, City of San Antonio Department of Arts and Culture, Do210.com, Real Ale Brewing Company, and Texas A&M University at San Antonio. Worth Repeating is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Tori Poole. Thanks for listening.